we built React Navigation to solve a lot of these problems. It was config based. And then last year, I created this new navigation solution called Expo Router, which sits on top of React Navigation, but it adds file-based routing to your native application, which is really exciting. It's the first file-based router for native app development. The first version was really focused on like, how is this even possible? Is this reasonable? Can you, you know, pull off really complicated interactions with it? Hello, welcome to the DevTools FM podcast. This is a podcast about developer tools and the people who make them. I'm Andrew, and this is my co-host, Justin. Hey, everyone. Uh, we're really excited today to have Evan Bacon with us. So Evan, you're well, well known for building and working on Expo, um, and we're incredibly, incredibly excited to talk about that. But before we dive into talking about Expo, would you like to tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, yeah, of course. And thanks for having me on. Um, so yeah, I'm Evan Bacon. I'm the developer, uh, or the, the manager of DevTools at Expo. I also manage the, the web platform and our, our server integration. Uh, before Expo, I was working uh, at Frog Design, uh, building apps and websites for, for various uh, you know, clients and kind of a consultancy type role, which actually led me to finding Expo just because uh, we, we need to build and prototype really fast and the, the needs just kept growing and growing. And, and React and React Native just really hit a lot of those boxes for us. Um, I switched over and now I, I worked on Expo for, uh, I guess, uh, going on seven years now, uh, so for, for a while. And then before that, I was a, a Lego master builder when I was uh, like 13 to 19. Yeah, Se seems like a fun time in your life. I saw pictures of you with like Stan Lee and all different sorts of stars. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's uh, really exciting. I, I just really uh, like working on very big, intricate projects, and um, open source, <laughs> you know, fits that perfectly. It's like just a continuation, like Lego, open source, like <laughs> native web, mobile integration. <laughs> right. Yeah, Lego is the the first signs that that you might have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here, folks. If your kid's really into Legos, <laughs> yeah, keep them away from from Rust. <laughs> Actually, Objective-C was what got me hooked on programming. So there were some early signs. So let's just dig in. Uh, so how would you explain what Expo is to people? And why might someone want to use Expo over, say, just raw React Native? Yeah, it's actually a great question. Uh, so Expo is a framework for building React Native apps. Uh, and the, the target platforms are iOS, Android, and web. And in the same way that React DOM, you don't really write websites directly with React DOM. You, you generally have a framework uh, or, or even some lower level tooling, which contains maybe like a bundler that can start a, in a CLI, that can start a dev server, and maybe some tooling for exporting and hosting. Um, React Native has uh, similar problems, actually uh, all those same problems, but then it's native development. So there's a bunch of other problems like upgrading and versioning and code signing and going through the app store uh, so uh, very similar to web development, and Expo is um, a fantastic framework for doing that. There are a couple of other frameworks as well. So there's a community framework. Um, Microsoft has uh, one that they've been developing, and then there's uh, Ignite by the Infinite Red folks. So um, yeah, uh, it, it's actually it's very similar to um, the web where you have like Next and Remix. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting now, like if we think about like where React is today, um, 
So yeah, sure. Some folks still do just like write raw React, but like the meta frameworks are like a big part of how people write React apps today. And and it is kind of, I guess, kind of interesting to watch that transition, um, you know, and, and I, having, so I worked on Artsy's uh, React Native app. So they had a big React Native app and the 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 mobile team is actually who, uh, it went from being a native Objective-C app to being React Native. And, and they're the ones who like, you know, sort of like advocated for that transition. Um, just so the, the broader team can work on it. And I, you know, seeing the pain like without, you know, just going raw React Native is like, of course, and it's gotten a lot better in the last several years too, but uh, in some ways, uh, but it, it can still be uh, painful. So um, one of the things uh, of, of many problems uh, is uh, routing, just how you, how you uh, figure out which views to render uh, whether you're embedding them as a, a web view in a, in a yeah. native render or, or whatever. So um, could you tell us a little bit more about like how Expo helps with that? With uh, routing? Yeah. Yeah, so navigation on native is, is a really tricky problem. And we've been working on it for a while. Uh, our, our, our base effort was this, this suite of libraries called React Navigation. Um, which is the main way that people build uh, navigation with React Native. And you know, some of the problems that you face with native navigation that you, you don't really face on web is that you need, you know, the web, you have like back buttons, you have URLs that you can move around with. Um, and actually, web is kind of moving more in this direction of, of how native routing works, where you have like nested routes, for example, like that's a, a huge one. Um, you know, previously, you would you just kind of, if you had like maybe a next, JS website, you would build like route by route, and then you have maybe like one shared layout element. Um, but in native app, you have uh, tons of shared elements between things. So nesting is actually a, a pretty big part of native navigation that's come to web. Um, so I think it's some cool convergence there. But then you also have uh, like parallel routes is another big one. You know, on in native apps, you don't have like um, the ability to create multiple contexts, like effectively multiple tabs. So tab bars will often fill in a lot of that, that, that purpose. If you think about like Twitter, maybe you're on like the home tab and then you're doing something that you want to reply with a tweet. So you'll tap over to the search tab, you'll find something and then you'll tap back over to the home tab. On web, especially like mobile Twitter actually, uh, if you tap back on that home tab, it will like reset you to the, the main homepage. Whereas on native, it will preserve that stack uh, memory inside and it will take you to that tweet page and you tap the tab again, then it will pop you back up in home. So there's a lot of complexity that I think the web has historically been able to kind of get away without having to add. And um, on native, you, you just need a lot of that. So um, we built React Navigation to solve a lot of these problems and it was, it was config based. Um, and then last year, uh, I created this new navigation solution called Expo Router, um, which sits on top of React Navigation, but it adds file-based routing to your native application which is really exciting. It's the first file-based router for uh, native app development. And uh, you know, the first version was really focused on like, how is this even possible? Is this reasonable? Can you, you know, pull off really complicated interactions with it? Um, and so far, yeah, people have had a, a, lot, of really, a lot of really good success with it. Um, so it is a, a nested router. You can do you know, parallel routes with it, and then you navigate everything using um, URLs, uh, which is pretty sweet because one of the most 
complicated and important features of a native app is uh, for, for a lot of native apps, not a silver bullet, uh, but for content-driven native apps specifically is universal linking, where um, you have deep links that can go into the app, but then you connect those deep links with your website. So you can send some, this is like how things like Twitter and YouTube and basically every major website works, where uh, if I send you a link to, for instance, like a TikTok, if you have the TikTok app installed, it will open the TikTok app and then it will take you to that content in the app. Uh, this is very hard to set up and it's very hard to test, especially like testing is, is such a pain with this feature because it's not a server. So you don't have like a, a request and a response. You just have a request and then you would need to have like some E2E -E test structure set up to see if the page actually worked. Um, so with Expo Router, because everything is URL driven, you have universal links automatically. Everything always works for everything on every route. And because you use uh, like route parameters to pass data around, um, the, the state between routes can also be serialized and shared and like publicly accessible, which is great for testing. It's great for um, sharing. And in the, in the same way that like apps have historically, you know, the apps that have been able to pull off universal links, they pair that with a server rendered or a static rendered website. And then what this gives them is effectively SEO for their native app. Because if you have SEO for your, your web representation of a tweet, you click on that and it takes you to the native version, you have SEO. So your app, you know, it, it can be searched and it can be indexed and it can be found. Um, whereas indie devs uh, don't have access to that because it's just too difficult to pull off. Uh, so with Expo Router, you get all that automatically because you get a website, which can be static rendered, and then you have a native app, uh, which is universally linked to that website. So uh, some, some pretty exciting capabilities are added by, by adding um, file-based routing. And we, we just released v3 maybe three hours ago as of recording this. Um, and so that adds, yeah, thank you. That was, it was a tricky one. Uh, this adds uh, API routes. So you have you know, servers that you can now deploy based on your file-based uh, routing system. Um, improved typed routing. So you, you have like autocomplete when you make links. And then um, now it has route-based bundle splitting, which is something that we, we just never had before. Um, this is currently disabled on native because we, we, wanna, we wanna add one, one more feature in V4, which will make it like, pretty slick to support um, basically indicating if a route should have the bundle be offline or if it should be online or like how it should val revalidate the caching policy for that, that split bundle because native apps, obviously, offline support is very fundamental. Um, so the possibilities are really endless. And, um, and yeah, so the, the routing and navigation is, is one problem, but um, by adding the file-based router, we were able to unlock and solve a, a slew of other problems. Yeah, it seems like looking at the examples, like it's a very natural fit with the like nested layouts and stuff. Like it reminds you of Remix or reminds you of App Router. Then all the new stuff that you've brought to Expo Router makes it like look so simple. Like I know Next.js pretty well. I could just switch over to Expo Router now and probably be pretty productive pretty quickly. Yeah, which is really exciting. And this also ties in heavily with um, how our web support works. So historically, the way we added web support was it was a web version of how native support worked. And native support has always been just kind of like an SPA, right? A client rendered single page application. You have one root component that renders everything 
everything's downloaded, everything's offline. When you start up the app, then all of the code executes to render the application. Um, so the web equivalent of that uh, would effectively be like create React app, right? It would be um, everything's offline, everything renders all at once, it's all downloaded at once. And that is not a reasonable website for, you know, for many different eras of, of web development. Um, and so by introducing this file-based routing system, we're able to um, really increase the complexity of what's possible on web by simply you know, improving what you can do on native. So historically, you know, with native, like you've had SPA uh, and then you, all your data fetching is all client-side data fetching. Um, but now we're able to do um, substantially more complicated things, which we have planned for V4. Basically the scope of when I came up with ExploRouter was it's very large. So we split it into four releases and we just put out V3. We're ready to do the, the final one, which kind of ties it all together. And it's going to be, uh, I've been, I started working on it a couple of days ago and it's, it's already pretty mind blowing. Um, just like what we'll be able to do on native. This week, we'd like to welcome our new sponsor. Without our sponsors, this podcast isn't possible. Our new sponsor is CodeCrafters. CodeCrafters is a platform that makes programming challenges for experienced software engineers. If you're looking for a weekend project that takes you to the edge of your programming abilities, you have to check them out. They have a bunch of really cool challenges. I saw on the website, you can build your own BitTorrent, build your own Git, build your own Docker. All these challenges make you walk through these like popular tools and you get to learn how they're built and how the protocols work, while at the same time, maybe even learning a new programming language. They support a host of popular programming languages, such as Rust, Go, and JavaScript, and a whole bunch more. When they signed up to be a sponsor, I made an account and went through their Build Your Own Redis challenge. As the listeners of this podcast know, I'm a front-end dev, so I didn't really know what Redis was going into this, but after building it, it surprised me that Redis is actually a pretty simple thing. It's just a key value store, and then Along the way, you have to learn some of the foundational technologies too. So when I started, I actually had to read up about TCP. They, they don't just point you towards a Wikipedia article or some other YouTube videos. They also have really nice learning content that like steps you through what, what TCP is, why it was made. And as a web developer, I should probably know that. It was, so it was really fun to get to, to learn about that. And I'm probably gonna continue with the challenge. Besides the content, even the user experience is targeted towards experienced software developers. For example, instead of trying you to a custom in-browser editor, CodeCrafters lets you build everything locally. You can use your own IDE, your own terminal. All you have to do is push and they run tests for you. To try out CodeCrafters for yourself, visit codecrafters.io slash devtools FM. At that URL, you'll get a discount, but you'll also be supporting the podcast. Do you not want to hear these ads anymore? Well, become a member on one of the platforms where we support it. You can head over to Patreon, YouTube, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts to become a member. And if you want to find another way to support the podcast, you can always head over to our merch store at shop.devtools.fm. There you can grab a cool corduroy hat like the one I'm wearing right now. If you want to apply to be a sponsor of DevTools FM, head over to devtools.fm slash sponsor to apply. And with that, let's get back to the episode. Yeah, uh, I was looking at Expo, I think like four or five years ago before you guys shipped web support. And like for me back then, it was kind of like a non-starter. I was like, well, I want a web app and now I have to build this whole second thing. So it seems like you guys have come a really far way. Uh, is it from like the rendering perspective, do I have like just one index or do I have like multiple app indexes, like one for my website and one for my apps? Yeah. So that's actually a fantastic question. Um, the 
there's a lot of these kind of cross-platform maximalists who uh, you, you can get a good sense for like what is the current state of code sharing from following some of these people. And, um, and some of them are really successful, like fantastic products. Uh, Fernando Rojo comes to mind. He was just in Forbes 30 under 30 for his, you know, like this product beat gig that he built, which is like an app and a website. It's like an expo app and a, uses Next.js to bundle the, the expo components on web. And, um, and right now, the, the limit is people will set up monorepos and the monorepo will have kind of like a, an app directory a shared components directory, which is mostly universal components. So think like React Native Web and, and, and Expo components. And then they'll have a, um, maybe like a Remix or a Next.js website. And then that will you know, have all the routes and re-export components. Um, and th that, is, that is pretty good. It's better than it was a couple of years ago, but it is fundamentally, that's a pretty big four. Like if you think about what goes into setting up your data fetching, and how much time you spend on trying to reduce like waterfalls and getting the content to load correctly and uh, authorization, authentication, just the whole flow of orchestrating how your content is presented to users, forking at that level is, is ridiculous. So with Expo Router, what, we're, what we would like to achieve, what I'm pretty confident we will achieve by later this year is um, a system where your data fetching and your rendering patterns can be shared across web and native and then your components can also be shared. Um, and I think at that point, the layer of forking, like where things will split between web and native will move up to um, mostly your layout routes. Like I think layout routes will be a big one because on native, your tab bar, you know, it's usually, it's this very distinct look. And then on web, you usually have like some sort of very responsive header. Maybe it pulls out into like the side drawer. Um, and then I think people will basically switch at the layout route level, but then the content of the page, you know, like a Twitter feed, that can it basically already looks the same across web and native. Um, and then there will probably be other places, you know, maybe like aspects of your data fetching will be forked uh, a little bit in behavior. But already it, it isn't that forked. If you think about like your server, your server is universal. Um, I think it would actually be neat if you could, in some cases, fork your, um, your server logic. Um, for things like maybe server rendering, like if you were to server render a list, maybe you would have components inside of that list change based on um, the platform that made the request to the, the endpoint. Um, like I think um, this is kind of a crude example, but like ChatGPT, when you use ChatGPT on mobile, it has a different prompt than what the web mobile is. It's like you are on mobile, so your response should be like fast and snappy and like easy and, and it like doesn't copy and paste, things like that. Um, so maybe you could scale that concept up to how the components are rendered. Like they're smaller, they're faster, or it's like a native device. So maybe the video is higher definition or something like that. Yeah, it was one of the things that like was pretty eye-opening very on very early on for me when using React Native is the the sort of like write once, run anywhere thing is is not real. Not not in a not in a real like not in a broad sense. It's like, sure, React Native Web exists and has gotten significantly better than it was. Um, and you can write a component and share it across platforms. But um, I think the, the the value here often is like that you're working in a familiar technology across platforms. And, and that alone gives a lot of value versus, you know, trying to share everything. Uh, I'm sure the story is, is much improved, but you know, at Artsy, we had went through some real pain trying to share 
share a lot of components. We we ultimately only had a design system that was shared across uh, web and mobile, and then eventually they actually split down the design system. So even that got split up. Um, and and then they were just doing like tokens, like design tokens they were using. Um, but yeah, that's a hard problem. It's a hard problem to like share as much as you can between those platforms. Yeah, it's a great observation. I think one way to frame it would be, uh, it, it's about the flexibility, the freedom to share various different things because your criteria depends, it changes, you know, based on what you're trying to build. So in some cases, um, you know, universal components, whatever, like if it was a very content driven, kind of almost like markdown type app, um, text should look the same across platforms. Um, but if it's something that's really refined in, in various ways to like the device, the physical capabilities of the device, then, um, you know, the components become less of a priority to share. And with React Native, what was cool was that you could share uh, React, right? Like the state manager and the yeah. component part. And what fell into the JSX was um, not shared. Um, and I, th I think then React Native Web came along uh, to like the, the Twitter website is still built in React Native Web. And it, it actually, it, it came along not to solve sharing code so much as like, um, solving uh, issues with web development at scale that uh, a lot of things uh, solve in different ways now. Like Tailwind, for instance, solves a lot of the same styling issues um, like in, in composition. There's, when you build a website, especially a couple of years ago, um, there was a lot of globals and a lot of like leaking things around. And um, now that's starting to get uh, much tighter and things have become you know, more component-based, more encapsulated without compromising too much on the ergonomics of web development. Um, Tailwind is, I think, a great example of that. Um, which is important to note, uh, they, like uh, React Native Web is probably not the long-term direction of how you should write components that are like universal. Um, you know, like, why, why isn't there um, like div that works on iOS and Android? Why, why do you need view that works on web? Um, so I think with React Native, you should have that flexibility, but I don't think that building a website with React Native means you have to use um, these components which feel very primitive to the platform. I think you should be able to change. In fact, changing out JSX is probably one of the easiest things to change out in React, in React, in Universal React. Um, some of the harder things to change out are like the bundler and um, the, the build pipeline, the navigation, the, the rendering patterns, Things like that are, I think, where where Universal React has historically broken down, and these are the problems that we focus on with Expo Router. Since you just mentioned uh, bundling, uh, we might as well jump into that next. Uh, on web, you have lots of different options for bundling, and it seems like you used some of those options in the past in Expo. But a, a little recently, you guys decided to focus just on the Metro bundler. So, uh, for the people who don't know, what is the Metro bundler, and then why did you choose it uh, going forward with the project? Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a really interesting story. So, um, or not, depending on how you feel about bundlers. Um, Metro is the the bundler that Meta develops. Um, so it's open source. And it's written with Flow. It's um, and it solves a lot of problems that Meta has had internally. So, for instance, they use Metro to develop the Facebook app, which uses React Native. Um, and so there are problems that they face with scale and working across teams and integrating with a monorepo. And so their bundler is, or at least was, um, 
very, very foreign in its techniques to like how everything else worked. And so with, with React Native, it has always used Metro and switching bundlers, uh, which I've tried many times in the past has very tricky. Um, and fundamentally, one of the reasons why it's actually so tricky is because Metro has all these techniques like um, lazy bundling and incremental, everything is very incremental. Like any file at any point can be an entry point to bundling. So you can pass in any file and then it will traverse the tree all the way down and return whatever it needs. Um, it has very aggressive caching, which makes plugins pretty difficult to write, um, but it makes it very fast. And then it also uh, means that you can have shared caching. So you can take those cached artifacts, you can bundle them on any machine in any context and you know, download them on a different machine and use them. So this is uh, like what Airbnb and, and Meta use. So they have a cron job which runs against the code and then is constantly bundling it. And then they just check out the cached artifacts um, like live as they're developing on it. Um, so it has some very interesting techniques. Actually, they're the only bundler which I think is kind of similar, or I think the bundler that shares the most similarities to it is the, the new Turbo Pack bundler where uh, from Vercel. Uh, it has a lot of technology that looks very, very, very familiar to um, Meta's, I guess Meta internally, they have this bundler called Haste, and Metro takes a lot of inspiration from that. I think TurboRiv also um, takes some nods from there as well. But probably the most important part of Metro uh, for, for us is um, when I was you know, coming up with Expo Router and what I wanted to build, um, one thing that was really important there was the ability to bundle server code and client code kind of simultaneously, or the, the ability to orchestrate them very neatly together. Uh, so Metro, you know, the, it actually, I think it kind of inadvertently built a very, very important uh, web bundling feature, uh, which is a multidimensional graph. Uh, so this is uh, when you have a, a graph which can share a lot of resources between different criteria, different abstract criteria for bundling. So um, Metro did this for bundling iOS and Android kind of at the same time simultaneously. Uh, but this can actually be used really well for server and client simultaneously. And when when you consider, um, you know, like how server components are bundled, which requires multiple passes, um, looking at the server and the client, creating the manifest, um, being able to combine a multidimensional graph for starting with server and then you know spiking off and doing the client and then sharing resources while you're doing that and doing that in like many different ways. Um, Metro actually would be really good for that. So kind of trying to skate to where the puck was going, we just decided we would um, you know, buckle down. And we also knew we'd have to build a ton of bundling features in order to make Exporator work. Like Exporator is primarily a bundler-driven project. Um, so we knew we had to, to build a bunch of things and we kind of traded, okay, we'll build bundle splitting, but we'll get the multi-dimensional graph part kind of for free. Um, it's been great. Um, you know, like when we... When we do incremental bundling, we have incremental bundling as part of Expo Router. Um, it's an experimental feature right now. Um, and we worked with the meta team on this actually because it was something that they developed for the Facebook app. And when you navigate to different routes at that point, when you navigate to the route, then it will fetch the route in a suspense boundary and download it. And at that point, will it start bundling it? See, traditional web bundlers, uh, often what they would do is they would bundle the entire thing together and split it up 
and then send you the pieces, which is what you always need to do in production. It's the most efficient way because you know what all the pieces are. So you can, you know, bundle split and you can tree shake. Um, but in development, it's much faster to um, just be, be more incremental and lazy about these things, make less assumptions about the, the final shape. Especially when you have an app as big as Facebook's. <laughs> right. Yeah. And actually, uh, I think uh, module federation in many ways tries to solve many of these same problems like Webpack's module federation, where you can work across different teams and you're only bundling the part of the app that you want to work on. So you'll like define what that section of the app is. And with Metro, you can define that by just having uh, async import boundaries. And then the bundler will stop crawling when it gets to those boundaries. Um, so you can, you know, if the structure of your app is such that you have like a team that works on search and a team that works on the feed and a team that works on profiles, then you've kind of naturally created some module federation shape here. If you combine that with like the very complicated caching where you basically are automatically not bundling the search page by never visiting it. Yeah, it's it seems like uh, we're in web, we're trying to build all of those things again. Like what you were saying about like the combined module graph, um, like literally I think Tobias came on here and said that same thing when we were talking about TurboPack. So interesting to see the same thing being developed in two different areas of the world. Um, one thing that uh, stands out to me about Expo that I've been going through the docs is you guys seem to have tried to adapt a lot of like web things into the native world. And one that stood out to me is CSS. Like there is no CSS on the native platform. Mm -hmm. uh, how, how did you guys make that work? And like, what can you do with it? Yeah, so the CSS support in an Expo, like the official support is web only. Yeah. Um, and there, there is a way to use it on native. Um, it's, it's kind of a, it's, it's a community project in a way it is developed by like someone on my team. So it's community, but it's, it's just like not kind of part of the, the blessed workflow. And the, the logic there is if you want to be, if you want to make the universal linking work, which I think is really important that we, we nail, um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, but if you want to make that work, then it needs to be like pretty compelling that people can build websites with Expo Router as well. And uh, if you're missing like CSS because native doesn't have it, then that's you know kind of a no-op. Um, so there are certain areas where we do um, kind of temporarily fork away, or rather maybe it's not a fork so much an escape hatch. So there are places where you can escape hatch and add CSS if you so choose. And I think it's important that we have all that. Like right now. Uh, we don't have a way to do static generation for native apps, but you can do static, like build time static generation for your website. Um, we do plan to, over time, actually add, add build time static generation for native apps. I think we'll have that in a pretty usable state by Q3. Um, but CSS is similar. So we, we do have CSS, and there's a project. It's a pretty sweet project called Native Wind. And what it does is it lets you use Tailwind on native. And this is pretty great because when you use it, um, on web, it just turns off, like it does nothing. It just like Tailwind is just running. So you know right out of the box that it's going to be a very efficient um, like web styling library. And you don't have to worry about like, is this going to hamper my web performance in a place where performance matters a lot. Um, but the, the way NativeWind works internally is it has a CSS parser and it like literally parses CSS into native styles, but there are a lot of places where CSS doesn't work on native, or at least in the context of React Native. 
Um, so it's like, you know, a lot of things like cascading, for example, don't work um, in, in declarative styles. So if you pair that CSS to native parsing with Tailwind, which actually enforces a lot of the same rules as React Native has, then you end up with a system that kind of is CSS on native. Um, so kind of works and doesn't work. Like we could maybe add native CSS, but we would need like some different extension, like something that indicates that it's, it doesn't actually cascade, um, which is a very important part of the CSS extension. Um, and then native one's also kind of cool because one issue we have with static rendering is um, like in React Native, there aren't any, there, there's really no declarative responsive styles. Like you have flex one, which indicates that it should be flexible, um, but you don't have media queries. So the way you would do these is you would add a hook that's like use window dimensions, and then you would check the window dimensions and change the styles based on you know some some dynamic hook. Uh, but you you obviously can't use that with static rendering because you'll you'll get a hydration error. You need some way to declare what the styling looks like at various different breakpoints. Um, so native wind gives you a way to basically do that de declaration on web, and then you know uh, behind the scenes kind of polyfill it in this you know crazy. It, it's actually very cool the native wind source because it's a crazy way um, where you know, it will based on where you add the the class names. Uh, kind of intercept the style and inject the hooks so that the, the hooks do exist and you still have like the, the rules of React, um, but they, they only exist whenever you use them. It's the same with animations, and it's the same with uh, appearance, like light mode, dark mode. So it is pretty, pretty snappy, pretty snazzy. And I think it's a, it's a good primitive. Like people will probably build a lot of things on it. Like we see people build you know, like shad CN type libraries and they build it on top of the native primitive. I'd say you know you built like a really good open source library is if it um, supports other projects as well. If people can like build on top of it, it's really one of the things that's defined a lot of React success is that you you could just get going and build React Native on top of it and so on and so forth. There's your Legos. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a it's a good Lego. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it is. It is. Yeah, it's it's interesting to hear that because on the, the last episode we recorded, we had Christopher Shadow on, and he was like. Oh yeah, we we meant to do CSS, uh, but nobody ever asked for it, so we never did it. And <laughs> here we are. <laughs> uh, it, yeah, people people definitely ask for more styles <laughs> in React Native and Yoga. Um, uh, we we are working on adding more native styles to Yoga. Um, it's just it's tricky because Yoga is very very popular, even outside the scope of React Native from Component Kit. And um, if you look at like any of the top Google apps in the app store, like you go to the licenses, yoga will be in there, like it's everywhere. So adding and changing the default styling is pretty tricky. It's, yeah. it's the ultimate form of changing the tires on the moving bus, so to speak. Yeah, for sure. Yoga is such a cool project. Uh, there's a, a React render to the terminal, like a TUI app uh, that I was using for a little while back and it uses yoga. And I was just like, this is, it's pretty cool. Yeah. There, this is a project by Vincent Reamer, uh, which is pretty sweet. It's called React Native DOM, which is kind of like React, uh, React Native Web, but it runs yoga in a web worker. So it's actually very similar to what Satori does, where Satori also mm -hmm. runs yoga in a web worker in order to you know, do the, the, the layouts. Um, 
And what Vincent was able to do with this was create these like wild animations where you would like resize things because it was doing all of the layout calculations separately and you could like animate things based on those, those animation layouts. So um, yeah, yoga is a cool project. Somewhat while we're on the topic of uh, these tools that bridge web and native, something that we were talking about before the, we started the call was um, sort of this state of native tooling used in the web. I I'm curious like what sorts of things that Expo is built on. And then just to talk more about tooling in general. Like, so there's a big push to rewrite a lot of things in Rust. We've had the, the Biome folks on before. Uh, we've had other folks uh, who are rewriting things in Rust. Uh, we had Charlie Marsh, who's working on a, a Rust tooling for Python. Um, I'm curious about, you know, both like what Expo is sort of like doing internally and your posture on this and like what you think about it in general. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we were talking a little bit before this about Rust. Um, and I mentioned that uh, Expo with uh, our flavor of Metro uses Lightning CSS for the CSS parsing, which is, you know, super fast, lightning fast even. Devin is extremely talented engineer. Um, highly recommend people check that library out. You're probably already using it. I think everyone's moved over to Lightning now um, in some capacity. And um, we, we use Babel still for a, a number of transpilations. Um, we lean really heavily on our, our caching and the bundler. To, to And then we also have, we, we actually, uh, Metro is very similar to Jest. Like the, a lot of the components that make up Metro are very similar to the components that make up Jest. And so the, the Jest worker is uh, used in Metro uh, to create the multi-threading mechanism. And um, yeah, we're, we're, so we're able to offset a lot of the, the AST um, improvements. I've, I've tried adding SWC support to React Native and it, it didn't move the needle too much. Like uh, it was, it's a bit faster. It wasn't wasn't substantially faster. Um, and then when you introduce Babel, because generally what you want to do is have some AST parsing for uh, modules which don't change, like your node modules, and then you use Babel for your application code, so that users have like an expressive and you know, uh, easier API for for transforming their own code. Um, and once you introduce that, then the savings kind of net back out to, to not be super positive. Um, then on the other side of the coin, there's Bun. Bun's amazing. I love Bun. Uh, Jared Sumner is a legend. And if you use Bun, it makes all your JavaScript faster. Um, I guess uh, another native tool that comes to mind is Static Hermes, which was released, uh, or it was announced kind of earlier uh, this, I guess, last year. Um, and for people who aren't familiar, Static Hermes is um, Hermes is the engine that we use in React Native. Um, it supports bytecode, so you can do all of your evaluation ahead of time, um, which actually creates a really interesting problem for React Native, where you can have like a 20 megabyte JavaScript bundle, and it just starts up in like under a second because all the evaluation is done at build time. Um, and Static Hermes pushes that even further, where it combines a type language with the compilation and by using the, the types inside of, so I think the main thing that they build against is flow, but presumably you'd also be able to use TypeScript. Uh, you could actually generate machine code from that JavaScript. And so this is something we'll be using with React Native in the future where uh, you know, part of your app could be compiled to machine code from JavaScript. And then you could just write native code directly with, with JavaScript. The performance would be, would be yeah, amazing. So um, 
I, don't know, I wish maybe more people in the JavaScript community went, went that direction of like using the types in TypeScript because TypeScript's a pretty easy sell for a lot of people and then getting some native native performance out of that. Yeah. Now I have seen like uh, compiled to WASM versions of TypeScript um, and some interesting things. Just like you can kind of do a limited subset and get some really powerful stuff out of it. But then again, uh, Meta's engineering team is 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 pretty wild. They're able to pull a lot of this stuff off. I, I wonder if any of the the stuff from Static Hermes came out of. I don't remember. If, do y'all remember this project that Meta was working on a few years ago that like did ahead of time execution of JavaScript to like simplify stuff? Like it was called. Uh, I forget. Andrew, do you know what I'm talking about? Is like run is a project for Meta that like ran JavaScript ahead of time to like uh, optimize. Pre pre-construct, uh, pre something, pre-pack. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wonder if any of the research from pre-pack went into to Static Kermes or if they're taking a, a very different approach there. Yeah. Um yeah, that's an interesting question. You definitely see a lot of um like meta ideas which are just kind of fundamentally different from other ideas, kind of sometimes trickling out into the space, like with Metro, all of the node modules are transpiled like application code. Um, and then they just rely on caching to solve that. And I think one of the main drivers of that is that they don't really use node modules as much. They use like, like the haste module resolution. And so all the code is basically treated as application code anyways. Um, and yeah, like you, you see varying degrees of that influence in other tooling. Yeah, I think regardless of what it is, you know, it it can take a lot of work on any platform to make performant code, and you can definitely make non-performant code regardless of what language that you write it in. For our uh, config reading, we use Shoecrace. Have you guys heard of Shoecrace? Yeah, it's yeah. fantastic. Um, it's just like a fork of Babel. So it's it's written in like TypeScript or something, and it's uh, super performant <laughs> for like trying to transpile like, a couple files. It's like one of the fastest options you can find, like faster than basically anything else in the market. Interesting. Yeah, all well, JavaScript. Always bet on JavaScript. Um, but speaking of things that aren't quite JavaScript, uh, I saw something called continuous native generation. You have a few blog posts about it, and it's called out in the docs. So what is that, and why would I use it? Yeah, it's a, another great question. Uh, continuous native generation is uh, it's a process and like a, a workflow. It's an idea. It stands for, or the, the abbreviated is CNG. And um, there can be different implementations of CNG. Uh, so our implementation of CNG is uh, Expo Prebuild, and this is you can think of it like a bundler for native code and native projects. So based on the the the, the code inside of your you know, some configuration that when run with a command will generate the iOS and the Android or whatever platform folders which will have a native runtime inside of it. And this is actually one of our, our most popular projects. Um, and it's kind of foundational to how Expo works now. Um, so for instance, if you have a camera library installed, like Expo Camera, React Native Camera, then when you run the, the continuous native generation command, it will know, OK, like this library indicates that it needs this camera permission added. And maybe it needs this like extra dependency added and these, these file changes. And then it will like take all those instructions from all the packages use those to generate the project, which solves a lot of really fundamental issues with React Native. Like the, the biggest issue historically has always been upgrading. And probably what like most people have done since the beginning of React Native is just 
at some point give up, create a new project and copy their code into that new project and then run it again. And it's actually like surprisingly worked out very well for a lot of people. And CNG is kind of like a, a democratized and organized version of that process that you're just always running. And we find that this also works really nicely, um, especially over time with your project getting larger and larger, because when you want to uninstall a project, when it has all these extra dependencies, you create you know, these orphaned processes, these orphaned um, references um, where maybe you add that camera permission, but maybe you add some other camera library, which also has a camera permission. And they're like, there'll be overlap and then you just won't remember to remove everything. With CNG, all that goes away because you nuke everything and the only thing that can ever be added is the code that currently exists in your project. And so what this allows you to do is uh, just focus on building a, a JavaScript app most of the time, and then you spend other time thinking about um, writing config plugins, which you know will generally take like some serialized representation of a native file and then interact with other plugins. And um, what's great about that is that the config plugins can be unit tested. So if you think about like a React Native library that has a, a you know like fifty setup steps, or any native library has fifty setup steps, it's like um, with a config plugin, you can be continuously testing and you know just testing those setup steps and ensure that they always work. Um, and that that was like the basic premise. Now it's actually been pushed even further. So people use CNG to build really outside the scope of what React Native is normally used for. Someone sent me a DM this morning, which was uh, they, they've been using a bunch of config plugins that I just make in my spare time. Uh, and one adds you know, like Apple settings, like settings to your your app in the Apple Settings app, uh, home screen widgets, and then they have like quick actions. And outside of widgets, the other two are pretty useless features. But uh, Apple does reward you if you use a lot of their features. Like they will, you know, like they they scan these things statically, um, and then they, they generally uh, no one really knows what goes on inside of Apple. But um, they, they there are posts which say like if you want to be recommended for like the editorial posts that show up in the front, then using more of their features will get you um, uh, shown there. So the problem with these features is that when they aren't super useful, adding them uh, increases the complexity of your project, which you know slows down the build and then you know makes it harder to work on features that actually do matter, or it makes it harder to upgrade your app. Um, so with config plugins, it's really easy to add, remove, and then when you add features like this, it doesn't increase the complexity of your project because um, it's just like it's represented as JSON. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a really fantastic piece of technology, um, and we, yeah, we're really excited about how well it's worked. Um, when when we wrote it, we we were not sure if it would. Well, we had no idea that it would be that it would work this well. Um, so it's it's awesome, and in many ways, it's what's allowed things like Expo Router to exist because by eliminating how much time you have to spend thinking about like you know, the code signing and the native build and all of this like upgrading problems, then you just think about uh, actually building your app with JavaScript, at which point you start thinking about it almost like a website. You're like, how can I really do the most with what's in this JavaScript? And so we, we made config plugins, rolled it out maybe like two years ago. And then a little bit later, we were like, all right, it's time to do Expo Router. Like We can focus on really making universal app development uh, an incredible experience. That's huge, though. That's huge. Yeah, it's it's a really important piece of this puzzle. Um, so I highly recommend people uh, use it if they have if they're using React Native and haven't uh, moved over to it yet.
is that essentially what makes it possible for like me as a person developing on Expo to never open Xcode? Um, that's part like, of it, yeah. So the other part is EAS Build, which is our cloud build service. Um, the EAS Build has two pieces. One is the cloud build service, and one is the authenticate, like the the code signing part. Um, and the code signing part uh, also kind of integrates with C our CNG implementation a little bit. So it can like look at if you have a widget and if you have an app and if you're using you know like paid services like merchant IDs and then it will synchronize all of those with Apple because if those aren't synchronized by the time you make your build then you it will fail and um, so yeah we we added the the authentication which is pretty sweet because then as your app scales and you add more complexity the code signing scales with it automatically and then EAS build you can build in the cloud and then if you have a team you can you know, like provision the app for that team, code sign it for different devices, re-sign it for different devices without having to rebuild it, and then download it. And, um, those pieces all together create a flow where you technically could work without Xcode or Android Studio. A lot of people um, have had pretty good success with that. Um, but if you want like the more advanced cases, um, then you're going to want to like dig in and use Xcode and Android Studio regardless. Yeah. You know, there's this, kind of this misconception that React Native is for easier development. Um, but in reality, it's, it's for more powerful development done easier. Very similar to React. Like, you don't, when you learn web development, you, like my baby sister's learning web development. I, I don't tell her to like, I'm like, yeah, you will learn React. And she like goes, she's like, where do I find React? And I was like, actually, uh, let, let's set you up with like some HTML, CSS stuff. And you like, you learn some of the basics. And then you add on React and it's like, now you can um, you know, I think uh, as the bar in, in moves higher and higher over time, it's like in order to feel some sense of like satisfaction with what you're developing, you need to be able to have more powerful tools. Like I think it's it's not super satisfying if nowadays, like at the end of the day, you have like a blue screen. Um, but if at the end of the day you have like some buttons and a list and like images, then it's a bit better. So um, yeah, React Native is is. You know, the way we think about it as we develop it is that it is for these more intense use cases and like how can you um, really blow past the, the simple stuff very easily, the stuff that users expect to be there, and then focus primarily on delivering, you know, like this exceptional experience. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, writing code on different platforms other than just like an iPhone. So there, there are these other... React Native platforms like so React Native Vision, um, you know the the potential to to write code for you know Apple's new VR AR uh, products. Um, have you have you ex explored those at all? Yeah. Did you guys? No. Did you guys buy a, a Vision Pro? Yeah, Forty five hundred dollars after tax is a little little too pricey to be an early bird on this one. I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's expensive. What about you? Yeah, I mean, uh, my my reasoning there was kind of like every like every dollar I currently have has come from the fact that at some point in my life I got my hands on one of these native devices and built native apps for it. So probably it would be a reasonable purchase. Um, but even then, I, I couldn't lie to myself. It was it was a mistake. This is this is not gonna. But uh, yeah, I did think like it would be cool to have Expo support on on Vision. So I got it for that purpose. Have ha, does Expo plan to like expand to any of those other platforms? Because I know there's like there's React Native Windows, React Native Mac. Like, 
there might even be a React Native watch. I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, so, you know, like with with Expo, it is a native library for a native app, right? It's um, whereas maybe something like Cordova is kind of like you're in a whole new world of web views inside of apps. Um, so with Expo, you can write as much Swift and as much Kotlin as you'd like for your respective platforms, and you can add Expo wherever you, wherever you need inside of that. Um, so if you have an Expo app, you can today, you know, just pop in there and add a, a Vision OS target and write the Vision part in Swift if you if you'd like. Um, our primary focus is on this this mobile development story. You know, mobile development or sorry, mobile uh, compute makes up like half of internet consumption, and uh, I, I think it's it's just really important that this problem is solved because it is incredibly difficult to make native apps. Um, and it just really shouldn't be. Like the people have a lot to say and making apps is a really, really important way to say things for a lot of people. Um, with the Apple devices, they all use these like M chips. They're like M1, M2, M3. And those, those all can support uh, cross-platform kind of in a watered down capacity. Like it's not baked out yet, but if you were to think about the time it would take us and the, the complexity in order to like add native platforms without the M chip, then uh, I think by that time, the M chip cross-platform would be about, so basically Apple's kind of going in the UWP, like the, the Windows direction, um, where you can write an Apple app once and it runs on different Apple um, products. So right now you can run in a React Native app on Vision. It runs, I think, is like a supported on Vision, uh, or support, like an iPad, like not optimized for Vision app. And then there's this React Native Vision fork, which has like a thousand lines of code in it, uh, which enables the ability to have it run like as a proper Vision OS app. Um, but if you want access to any of those primitives, that's kind of the benefit of React Native, right? Like. Vision OS came out with these new primitives. Like here's this button, which is crazy blurry and has like this wild shimmer effect on it. Um, if you were using like Cordova, you would have to kind of re-implement that in CSS. Um, and with React Native, you you just make a binding to the underlying native button that Apple released. So it's it's pretty um, it's pretty optimized for switching platforms. Our, our focus at Expo though is primarily on um, on on mobile devices, and I think. Um, the, the main device class that we don't support is Windows, like native Windows. Um, if we had that, then I think that touches uh, basically every platform because you could currently deploy your, um, your Expo iOS app to Mac with M1 devices. Have you seen the work that the Arc, Arc browser team is doing? They're like trying to port? The Arc browser with Swift? Yeah, yeah, I've seen that. Um, yeah, like Swift Windows, I was like, Wild. That's another one of these whole new world things. Like Expo can be thought of kind of like Netflix. You know, it's like there's a really, you know, refined version for these individual platforms. Um, at no point is Expo like shoehorning its theme into a different plat. Like there, there are different paradigms which work cross-platform, like React, um, and those um, are the where things are universal. But in terms of like changing the the language. Uh, it's tricky, you know, like JavaScript runs on all these devices. Uh, ARM chips have like special concessions for running JavaScript. And, um, and, and yeah, so uh, we, we, we do really respect the, the native platforms that we develop for and the, the native developers for these platforms. Like at Expo, we're all native developers. 
um, and we, we care very deeply about the platform. So we want the experience that you get to be as native as possible. Um, like universal linking is a native feature and it feel your app feels super native when you can deep link and it instantly goes there. A lot of apps, when you universally link um, like Twitter, a lot of people will experience this where you like open it and then you'll kind of see it just sitting there loading and then maybe it will load in and you'll see it forgot about the link. And you have to like swipe back and tap on it and then it remembers it. And that's because like the, you know, the orchestration of like data fetching has interrupted the routing. And these are problems that uh, when you kind of frame them like that, they sound like things that have existed on web that were, you know, solved in, in some, some meaningful way. Um, but yeah, in the same way that React binds to the web and it's a true website, React Native binds to native and needs to be a true native app. So recently there's been some new things in the React world, uh, that being React server components. When we had uh, Nate from Tamagui on, he had a visceral reaction to server components. He's like, uh, mobile apps are local first apps and that's the way they should be. Uh, React server components don't make sense in that paradigm. Is your take the same or do you think differently? Um, yeah, I don't think, uh, so in regards to React, uh, React server components, specifically on native, um, you know, I don't think that server components are like diametrically opposed to offline support. I actually think that they play uh, play into offline pretty well. Uh, if you think about like uh, how a, a React server components work is um, each server component is rendered at build time. And then it the components will indicate what their caching and revalidation uh, should be. So like when should it update from the server? But by default, they are made at build time and shipped effectively what could be offline. Um, so if you built an app that truly was fully offline, which is very few apps, by the way, and, and the apps that are offline are generally apps that Apple will consume, you know, like pull into their ecosystem and, uh, you know, Sherlock. Um, so in the cases where you do have content that is online, it does make sense to have um, the, or it could make sense to have the rendering be closer to the data. Um, and this ties in really nicely with OTA. Like OTA is probably one of the leading reasons that people go for React Native, um, is this ability to send code that orchestrates the native code that's already on the device over the air. Um, so if you think about the native code that you actually ship, that's like the browser, and the JavaScript is kind of like the web page. Um, but it's you know, highly refined for that browser. And offline is actually really interesting in that context because like offline on web, you can use service workers. And service workers are just so fundamentally um, difficult to use that it's, it's almost dangerous to use them, right? Like if they cache too aggressively, then you can't send a bug fix and you'll get contacts and support. And people will be like, hey, why does my URL not update? Um, and, and then, you know, like, okay, clear your browser cache. Uh, with a native app, you could effectively have the same service worker API because um, if you had that issue where things were cached too aggressively, you could just push a new binary through the store and it will nuke the cache. Like you have that mechanism. On web, the equivalent would be if you could push a website update which updated Chrome and, you know, like obviously it's not a thing. Uh, so I do think that we have some, some levers to pull to make offline work um, really nicely. And, um, 
And I, I just don't think service uh, server components really break any of that. I think server components are actually going to be really fantastic um, on React Native. So I, I built, I think, was maybe the first public prototype of server components. I have a video on it. Um, and it was the kind of context was that someone was like, it can't be done. And I was like, oh, it's, you can't do it. Um, and I've, I've dug into that a lot more recently. And the results have just been fantastic, like just, uh, incredible. Uh, the things that you can do with server components on native, um, these are going to be things like static generation, right? Uh, if you think about like the, the RSC file format, uh, a lot of this actually works better for native than it does for web. Uh, because you know, on, on web, people always have these questions like, how, where does the HTML come from? And the answer is like you have this extra renderer that sits on top of the RSC renderer that takes the RSC and turns that into HTML. Um, so RSC can kind of be thought of as like native HTML. Um, and if if the browser just supported loading RSC directly, you wouldn't need the HTML. Um, so if you think about like the native app being the browser, if it could, you could make it however you want. You could make it load RSC files directly, um, and then you could create you know things where maybe the UI shows up before the JavaScript is loaded. Um, or you could, you know, compute complex um, components at build time or on the server. Uh, right now, we have really no mechanism uh, to do build time static generation for native apps. So if you have you know, gradients and you know complex uh, things where props are you know being computed in at runtime, um, you just always pay that cost, even if they never change. A good example would probably be Markdown. You know, Markdown has lots of rules. Like if it's the first H1, then the padding needs to be larger than if it's the second H1. And all those rules just run on the user's device when they load up the, the MDF or the, the Markdown or something. Um, with server components, you could compile all of those rules out unless they change, in which case you could compile them um, maybe in a separate thread on the same device. Maybe you could compile them in the server. Um, so I think a lot of the problems that people have had have maybe come from um, a particular implementation of server components rather than server components themselves. Um, the, I mean, they are, it has been extremely difficult to implement. They, there's like no documentation, very, even though I talk to people who work on Meta, work at Meta on React uh, like every day, um, it's still very tricky uh, to figure out how a lot of this works. Um, you know, there's crazy nested opinions everywhere that kind of span between um, React and the particular implementation uh, that currently exists. Like one that I just encountered yesterday was um, the error that you get. Like I didn't realize you couldn't use uh, class components with uh, server components. Like class components can't be server components. Had no idea. Um, it makes sense, but I just I'd never seen that written anywhere, and I've read a lot about them. Um, and uh, the error that you get is really confusing. And uh, apparently, the way that you want to balance that error out with like the use state error, because the use state error is pretty good. It's like you can't use use state here because it doesn't exist. Um, the way to, to balance it out is that you have like an AST pass, and the AST will just look and see like it will match if you're extending a class component in a React server environment, and then it should throw a similar error. So you have like this kind of weird asymmetrical um, interface. But all this is like the implementation and um, the, the errors. And uh, I think in terms of the UX, like what the, the user will experience, and then when it's really refined, what the developer will experience is going to be just incredible. 
Like it, it's going to be, it's so many new tools in your tool belt. Um, and that's just the, the tip of the iceberg. Um, I th it, it, it's really, I, I can't state enough how excited I am for this technology. Um, and I, I don't think it's going to really get in the way of offline first. I do think that offline first, you know, like one way that you could think of offline first is kind of like optimistic UI. And right, like before you make some network requests, do something locally and then update. Um, I do think that the particular implementation of server components that most people have seen is very like everything goes to the server first heavy. Um, it doesn't have to be like that. Even the server navigation in ROC doesn't, see, it seems like it doesn't have to be that. Like it doesn't, seems kind of optimal for the web where you are always online. But what if you just had like one giant root server component and that represented all of your routes? And then you did what was effectively like client side navigation throughout that server. Like, I don't see why that isn't possible and why you couldn't cut out all of the, the, um, the, the server interactions if you wanted to. Um, I, I, I can see how people got to this place though, based on what they have currently seen. Yeah, I think this is one of those interesting technologies. So, I mean, we talked to Christopher in the last episode. It reminds me a little bit of like JSX when people were talking about JSX and React and and it's like, you know, there's a lot of like, people are like, what is this? Why are you doing this? Whatever. And and there were like some fundamentally good principles there. It's like actually co-location of UI is, is a really powerful concept that enables composition in a way that you really couldn't do before. And, and I think the challenge with RSCs, I'm sure that there's, you know, there are a lot of great ideas here, but it's also complex to communicate. Because uh, you had said something uh, just now, this is like, oh, well, you know, fundamentally, React server components are built on the server. And I, I mean, built, you know, they're they're built at build time or they're generated at build time. And at a different computer than your computer. like Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that, like, the name is a little bit of a misnomer in some cases because people are, like, considering, it's like, oh, it's running on a server. And it's like... Yes, but, and then, yeah, I don't know. So there's, it'll be interesting to see how it evolves and like the language changes and obviously documentation and different implementations and stuff will, will go a long, long way. Yeah, I always call them uh, serial components. Like it, it just makes so much more sense to me. Um, I just say server components, like I have to like retrain myself before I talk about them publicly. But when I think about them, it's, it's serial components because the, yeah, so I think, is both the, the serialization of your components, but then also I think fundamentally one thing that's a little uh, that I'm not so sure about in server components because I've said a lot of positive things, but one thing I'm not so sure is that uh, opting into reactivity uh, with a client boundary. So like the default is server components, and then you say, okay, this component is interactive and it has you know state, um, and I think that's a little weird for React to be something that you you opt into. Um, it would feel like you kind of opt out of reactivity with React. And then I also think there's some weirdness around um, like HMR. Like it's it's not as intuitive as when everything is a client component because you have fast refresh, which you know updates the component and then it you know, changes the state within the component. But with the server component, it's like what what should refresh? Um, yeah, the the basic you know the root component when that changes that should refresh. It's pretty obvious. But the root component does come from what is effectively like a server action. It is a uh, an API route that runs in a React server environment and it returns RSC. Um, however, other server actions within your app that return RSC, should, the, should those update? Like, should later in your app, should the request be remade 
and then the component come down and like re-trigger when you update the JSX inside of a server action? Um, it's hard to say. So I think ergonomically, there are some, some tricky bits in there. Um, but for as low level as I am when I'm writing Expo, it's very exciting for me, um, the, the ideas and the potential. And I also think that uh, I don't know, in many ways, I think server components are more interesting for native than they could ever possibly be for web. Um, like, I think a lot of the stigma comes from people who are like, okay, well, everything already can be rendered on the server and there already is a static representation and we already have data fetching and we already can do build time static generation, but you can't do any of those things on native in a reasonable way. Um, and so to be able to all of a sudden do all of them is it's pretty game changing. Um, like if you just like go onto Google and you just search like server driven UI, you're gonna see like how Lyft does it, how Uber does it, and how Shopify does it, and like everyone has their own implementation of this at a certain level. It's it's such a complicated and important feature, and I think in the same way that with React Native, where if you wanted reactivity, you would kind of pay the cost of all this extra complexity in order to get reactivity on native. Um, a lot of that has kind of gone away over time, and now you have reactivity just built into the native platform in many ways, um, with like SwiftUX, like they've copied so much React. Um, but if you want server-driven UI, I think React Native is the perfect place for that because you have your native UI, you have you know, your Swift elements, your Kotlin elements, whatever you want, um, and you bind that to a primitive, which then exposes it to the server. So in this case, that would be JSX. And then that JSX, um, you can now um, basically orchestrate, I want these native components to mount, and I want like the instructions for those to be generated at build time, but I don't have to like go out of my way to say these are generated at build time. I just wanna, I want the compiler to magically know that these should be generated at build time. And these parts that are you know, data-driven, I want those to update. And I want those to update on the server. And I want those to update on the server in the context of an iOS or an Android app. Um, and I want them to be versioned as well. So a, a lot of uh, really important just native problems from a frameworkless perspective, I think, are solved with server components. So um, yeah, I think it's going to be game-changing. It's going to be a huge, whole new world. Very exciting. Yeah. That that leads into our last question pretty well. Uh, on the podcast, we always like to ask like a future-facing question of the field that the person is currently involved in. So, uh, right after I said "whole new world," <laughs> yeah, okay. So, what, wh like, what do you think the future of cross-platform development in React is? Like, I've seen a lot of React fatigue on the internet lately. Do you think React's going to go away? Um, uh, well, I think the future uh, will look like server components. Um, and I think, I mean, I, 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 a lot of my feelings are kind of tied up in this, this server component thought and in Expo router, I think Expo router is going to be really important. Um, it's already proven to be very important. And, you know, I have people who come to me all the time, like consultancies, agencies, and they're, they're like, when can we just use like one, uh, like there's a lot of people who have kind of sold, um, customers on. Hey, if we just swap from frameworkless to you know, React Native, then you get it. And then they've enjoyed the benefits of being on the single. And now they're like, how can we do that for another platform? Um, so we we already kind of have the um, we have like the acquisition there. You just need the to deliver on the actual framework and make it good. Um, in terms of React fatigue, I, I think people are just maybe tired of like 
particular implementations of React. Um, you know, there's a, a big shift, big change. I'm super excited for React Forget. I think React Forget is going to be fantastic. I'm so excited for it. Um, I hope my hopes aren't up too high for that, um, but they probably are. But I like, yeah, memos are just not my favorite thing. I don't think I've ever really written a memo correctly. Um, I learn new things about them all the time. It's just, I'm excited to not have to deal with them. Uh, and I think a lot of people saw that potential early on, and then they implemented that in different frameworks because they were able to move a bit faster. And so people are like, well, you can get all of those from over here. And I just don't think there's enough dialogue around forget. Um, so I think whenever Meta decides to release that, um, that'll be really important. Like I remember when server components came out, I was at NextConf and uh, I just remember thinking like, and saying like, if they had instead ushered out forget, like people would be pretty hyped because React was already kind of teetering on being pretty complicated. And there was all these other you know solutions that were more reactive and, and they were like, actually, let's get like really complicated with it. Uh, so I think forget brings it down uh, a bunch of pegs. I do think that there are elements of server components that simplify, um, not React, but like framework implementations of React. You don't have to think about is this SSG or SSR too much. You just think about like how frequently does this update. Um, you know, like I think uh, I think mixing will, will be really exciting. There's so like mixing. Some parts are built statically, and other parts are built on the server, as opposed to like route by route. Um, and then I. It's hard to say which way things will go with the Vision, like Vision Pro, if that will like be important. Now, Apple's been collect collecting patents for Vision Pro for like like the first one was like 17 years ago, and they have over like 5,000 patents. I think they said when they announced it. Um, so there's definitely a lot of parts to VR that um, are important, and other people just have not been allowed to use because they are legally not allowed to do anything with them for like 17 years. Um, these have been collected up. So there's a chance that that computing is in a pretty good state and we just don't know because we haven't, no one has been allowed to try different stuff. Um, and if that comes out and it does do well, then you know maybe, maybe that dips into the, um, the desktop space a little bit. Um, a lot of, I think, web usage like the majority of web usage comes from desktop, right? Like on, on native devices, um, I think it's close to like 90% of internet usage comes from a native app, right? As opposed to a mobile web browser. And so the majority of the influence of the web uh, comes from desktop-based devices. And if Vision, if Apple really throttles the web on Vision, similar to what they've done on iOS, and it kind of takes some of the place of like your desktop stationary computing, you know, so you can get those bigger monitors and you can get these gestures and stuff. I think if that happens, then maybe we will see more like the, and it wouldn't really be, I don't think native mobile so much as maybe like native desktop, like that's where the, the app sector falls there. So I think that could be kind of interesting um, or none of that will happen <laughs> at all because it's too expensive <laughs> and like who use it. <laughs> Um, but yeah, mostly I'm excited for Forget and React Native Server Components and Expo Router. I think those are going to be like three killer pieces of technology. Um, and I don't think people are going to get too burnt out on React. I do think Astro is fantastic, though. Have you guys used Astro? Yeah, yeah it's great. It's awesome. Um, 
Yeah, like there are there's different types of websites, and you know there's web apps and websites, and uh, Astro yep. really kills it with the the website space where you want like static content. It's really hard to compete with that. In a lot of ways, I think you do pay the cost of React being this like universal mechanism uh, when you build a website, and a lot of times it's like you don't actually have to pay that cost. You could just build a you know some static thing with Astro and. It's, it's pretty slick and easy. And that's not to say that React could never be as easy as Astro is, but I think the same thing that people think with Expo, where it's like Expo maybe um, would struggle to be the best in each platform because it's trying to be really good at multiple platforms. Um, I think that also applies to React. Now, I don't think it's like a huge deal, but I do think that with React having, you know, like um, opinions about the event system and various opinions about um, scoping, reactivity, um, those do, you know, cause it to maybe move at a, a slower rate. Also, I think just the success of it makes it move at a slower rate. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Like, uh, I think Astro will keep doing really great and really excited for that. Um, but, you know, those, that's just websites. Uh, like, uh, one thing that really excites me about native development is just the fact that you get to think in, like, in terms of first principles. So you get to think about, like, you know, is this the, the best possible thing that the device that I'm holding in my hand is capable of doing? And um, with web, you're, you know, you're limited by browser vendors and specifications, which are fantastic for various types of innovation. But you know, like, uh, I, when you buy the Vision Pro, um, it's just like it was on the front of my mind. Uh, one thing that you need to do is that you, they measure your head, like the size and shape of your head, so that it's fit correctly um, and in order to do that they they send you a, like a web link and then that web link opens an app clip and then that app clip um, has you know, the access to the high fidelity cameras on the front of your iphone and from there you can scan your face and then they know the you know like which size uh vision to give you which size headband um, and i just think that it's fantastic that if you're a native developer you can think in first principles um, okay, we have these devices. Um, we need to minimize the amount of complaints and like returns that people might do. Um, it's like, how can we solve this for the most amount of people? And um, if you're limited by browser vendors, if you're limited by app stores, then these things get in the way and you, you can't just build the best possible thing. And if you can't build the best possible mm -hmm. thing, and it's like, I don't know, maybe it's not as exciting and you're probably not going to work as hard on it. Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's an exciting space to be in. I'm uh, really grateful to be able to work in, in app development. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm real excited about the future too. RSC seems like a great innovation and React Forget can't come soon enough. Like, uh, I, I don't want to use callback ever again or even have to think about what callbacks <laughs> are doing. Um, but yeah, th thanks for coming on the episode. Uh, this was a lot of fun. I uh, learned a lot about Expo I didn't know and where it's gone in the last few years. And uh I'm excited to see what you guys put out. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, you should give it a try. It's a, it's a good time. Yeah, Evan, uh, again, congratulations on V3 launch. We'll be eagerly looking forward to V4. Uh, I, I wish all, all the best with that. Yeah.